Well, good morning. So today we are actually jumping into a, a brand new book of the Bible uh, that we haven't discussed before, and that is James in the New Testament. It's an epistle. We call it a book, but it's more appropriate to call it an epistle. And we'll get into that in a minute, exactly what all that means. Um, it's, it's actually a collection of wisdom sayings and proverbs and instruction that's kind of wrapped in a, a letter format. Um, but we'll get into that in a minute. So we're, we're jumping way ahead from the Old Testament. So we wrapped up 2 Samuel last week with kind of a cliffhanger ending on, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of the end of the life of David, King David, and, and what that was about to mean for the, uh, the uh, monarchy in Israel at the time. We are jumping way ahead in time as well as in... Uh, physical scripture. So where Samuel is in the fairly the beginning of what we call the Christian Bible, um, which would be part actually kind of the beginning of the Hebrew Bible as well, we are almost to the end of the Christian Bible now in the New Testament, in the letter or book of James. So this is this is what we always do in this class, and it probably bores the heck out of you, and I'm sure this is the part where you go, okay, I'm going to go get a jelly donut because he's about to talk about history and archaeology and time. And, uh, you know, let's see, let's see what's on the internet right now. But uh, it's really important, I think, to kind of anchor us so we understand who wrote this, who did the author write it to, and what was the purpose. And those are the three things I, I constantly remind myself and you as we study the Bible to focus on as you are a student of the Word because it helps you to understand what it means and why it says what it says. And you can't understand the Bible without asking those three things. You can't just open the Bible and just, you know, randomly pick a verse, <clears throat> you know, read it out loud and think that you can, you know, derive deep meaning from it. You can derive some meaning from it. Um, and I think that's how probably 80% of us read the Bible and study the Bible is at a very surface level. We read it. Um, we tear off the calendar of the Psalms every day and read a Psalm, and it might be uplifting. <clears throat> um, we might have a Bible study that we're going through at, uh, you know, with our church uh, brothers and sisters, or we might have a, you know, a book that we've purchased at a bookstore or online. But <clears throat> that can only get you so far. And I like to remind folks that you know, to actually understand the word, and like I said, to, to, to make it a part of yourself, like you're eating bread and drinking juice. That becomes a part of you. Um, it becomes Laura, or it becomes Roger, uh, becomes Brian. Um, to make the word a part of you, you have to understand it, and you have to, and that's why you're here. You, you know, gold stars for you. Um, and so today we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. So where are we chronologically in history? Well, I've drawn my timeline for you up here. Now you can instantly see this is a very different reference point than we've had in the past. Okay. So in the past, you know, usually I start around 2000 BC, right, the age of the patriarchs. Well, this is 4 BC, so already you can see that the scale is very, very different than what we've had in the past, and it goes forward to about 100 AD, because that's, that's kind of the period that, that really counts for this, this letter uh, of James. <clears throat> if we were to go, of course, 2000 years in the past, I mean, this would be way, way, way out here, and so you can see that the scale is very different and the length is different. Um, there's a few key events that happened in this period that are, of course, important for the, the letter of James. The first is, of course, the birth of Jesus. That's probably the most important. <clears throat> well, we don't get into this too much in here, but you know, let's just suffice to say around 4 BC is when Jesus, we think, was born. There's a lot of reasons why that's 4 and not 1 <clears throat> or 1 AD. <clears throat> and then we have his ministry, which is you know, almost universally agreed with sometime in the early 30s AD. Now, exactly when, we don't know, and how long it was, we don't know. There are clues in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, that it lasted for at least three Passovers, maybe more. So that's, that's how we, we come you know, to understand this was probably a very short ministry. I mean, just think about how long Dan Hudson has been a preacher since the 80s, right? So Dan Hudson has been preaching 10 times as long as Jesus preached on this earth, okay? So maybe that helps to frame your understanding here. So this very brief ministry, which ended with, of course, his, his crucifixion and resurrection. And then the church is born and Pentecost happens, you know, 50 days after uh, Jesus rises from, from the earth to, to ascend into the heavens. And the church is born and from there it's, it's an explosion, right? Um, we start with about 120 believers 
at Pentecost, and, and from there it turns into thousands of believers, and now we may be talking tens, even hundreds of thousands of believers by the end of the first century. Now, some key people that are going to be important here are people named James, and maybe that's a big shock to you. Why? Oh, well, because the epistle is called the Epistle of James. It's important. <clears throat> well, the first thing to say is that we in this class are not going to be the first ones to ask who wrote it, because people have been asking themselves who wrote this epistle and others in the New Testament for 2,000 years. This is what I want to say, just kind of briefly, and this is kind of a you know an important thing I'd like to mention, which is... <clears throat> Most of the content of the Bible is anonymous. What do I mean by that? I mean that either the book or letter or, or passage that you have in your Christian Bible either has nothing, nothing written in the text itself about who wrote it, um, or if there is a reference to an author, and in James we do, James is actually... Um, uh, autographed, so to speak, with a man named James. And in the beginning, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, actually, that is really good for the Bible to actually have in the text of the, of the scripture itself a reference to its author. That's the minority, actually. That, that tends to happen less often than you would think. What I like to tell people is there is... <clears throat> There's always controversy about who writes these things. And, and that gets at a lot of apologetics. You know, people, you know, the very first thing that they want to do, who, again, it's a heart thing, who want to deny the authority and, and relevance of the Bible and the Word of God is to start it by attacking who they think is the author. <clears throat> it is not unlikely that the people who are... <clears throat> attributed as the authors of the scripture of the Bible, it is, it is entirely likely that they are in fact the source for the material. Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, who was the author of James, and I'm going to just put out here today that it is not unreasonable to think that the person that we think, and even all the way back to antiquity, who wrote these, these books, and in fact I'll use Moses as a perfect example, you know, tradition says Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Pentateuch or the, um, uh, the Torah. I believe, as do many biblical scholars, that Moses was in fact the source of much of that material. Was Moses the person who finished the five books? No, he wasn't. And I can tell you for sure that that's true because it, Moses' death is recorded in the Torah. Now, he didn't die, come back to life and finish off Deuteronomy, uh, you know, it, that's not what happened. So we know for a hundred percent fact that the form of the books and letters you have today were not necessarily completely composed and written by hand by the people who the the authorship is attributed to. That's okay. That's okay. And, and I'll make the biggest um, <clears throat> comparison here of all, which is Jesus of Nazareth himself. Jesus, we believe did not write any of the material of the New Testament. Was Jesus the author of the New Testament? A hundred percent. So now you can see very clearly and very simply by doing a thought experiment that you don't have to be the person who picked up the pen with the ink and the papyrus and wrote the words out to be considered the author. Okay? <clears throat> Jesus is the author of the New Testament. Moses was the author of the Torah. Um, Samuel was the author of Samuel. Those people, and in fact, in some cases, actually did write some of it, we think, by putting pen to paper. They were the author because they were the source of the material. At some point, every single book and letter you have in the Bible was edited. That's also not disputed. Over 2,000 years, and in fact, in the Old Testament, 4,000 years plus, that material went through a lot of copying and, and in some cases editing. What we call redaction. Pieces and narratives were put together into a coherent whole where the narrative made sense. <clears throat> now that brings us to the letter of James, the epistle of James that we're talking about today. Who is James that this is attributed to? Um, first, it's important to recognize that a lot of the authorship... So, so when I said earlier that most of the content of the Bible is anonymous, you're probably looking at me going, Brian, 
I don't know what Bible you're reading. Every single book of my Bible has a name at the top. <laughs> well, here's Matthew. There's Mark, Luke, John, right? Um, Timothy, Titus. It's really important. Now, this is really key here. All of the titles were added later. All of the titles were added later. All of the scripture that we have of the Old and New Testaments was written as a composition with no title. Think about that for a minute. Only later, because people needed to organize the material, because people needed to add validity to the material, and especially in the New Testament because the scripture, it was a very important thing in the first and second centuries to canonize material, to say this is authoritative, and this other stuff isn't, that titles were added. The title of James was not the title of this epistle when it first circulated in the first century. There was no title. It was a piece of scripture, a document, with some writing on it, that in this case happened to start with James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, which James is this? <laughs> now here we go. You're going to put your critical scholar cap on. I promise we'll get to the text in a minute. But we've really got to set this up. We know this is James, a servant of God. And what else? The Lord Jesus Christ. I put a lot of weight in the opinions of authors from antiquity and, and from tradition. Now, a lot of people, especially in kind of the kind of atheist circles today, reject that. And I think that's flawed logic. I think that's flawed logic because... I would say to myself, who are the people who are most likely to know who wrote this? Probably the people who lived during the period it was written. Okay? The people who lived during the period in which we are almost certain James was written, which is the second half of the first century, unanimously said that James, the brother of Jesus, is the author of James, the epistle. Okay? So... <clears throat> Literally, here, it's James. Tradition says it was James, Jesus' brother. Now, well, stepbrother. Half-brother. Yep. Now, why do we think that? Well, there's a couple of things that seem to stand out as, um, if you think about it logically, there are a lot of James mentioned in the New Testament. Um, there's at least four James that could have been candidates for authorship of this epistle. Well, two of them, scholars tend to reject right out because uh, they tend to be very minor characters. Either they are the, the, they're basically the disciples of Jesus, um, <clears throat> and others associated in the New Testament associated with Jesus' ministry. who seem to be minor characters, and they don't seem to, uh, you know, they only appear a couple of times, and then that's it. So, so scholars say that yeah, maybe that's not the people who wrote this. <clears throat> There's two serious candidates that could be the authors. That leaves us with James the Apostle, the brother of John, and James the brother of Jesus. Now, both have their own problems. If James the Apostle wrote this, well, it turns out that James the Apostle died within 10 years of Jesus' ministry. And this is recorded in Acts. And Acts is a great book. Everyone asks me, what's your favorite book of the, of the Bible? I always say, there's one answer, it's Acts for me. Because it is the, the dream of Brian Freeman. It is history and archeology span and literature. And it is, a, it is a record of the church when it first began. And, and it's comprehensive and it's logical and I love it. Acts is great. Acts records that James, the apostle, the brother of John, died very early in history, probably too early to have written this. And when we get into the, the text of James, we'll see there's a lot of really good thought that's been put into this. In fact, James is excellent. It's an excellent book. Theologically, the Greek is excellent. I've read it in Greek. It's really hard. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, of terminology I didn't know when I read it. The sentences are constructed very well, and, and, and it's just very, it's very thoughtful. Um, <clears throat> and we'll get into this in another minute, but it doesn't seem like that could have all been... And there's a lot of theology that Paul had been developing later that's developed here that probably doesn't make sense it was developed so early. And in fact, Paul was just getting going when James the Apostle was killed in 44. 
In fact, most of Paul's epistles are written later in the 50s and 60s. <clears throat> so it seems as though it's, it's not James the Apostle. The one that, that tradition records universally wrote this is James the brother of Jesus. Now that has its own problem. Why? Why would it be weird? He wasn't a follower. Yeah. The New Testament records not just James, all of the brothers and family of Jesus thought he was crazy initially. Yeah, but most brothers do. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And so... Actually, it, they actually rejected him. I'm sorry. Yep. They rejected him. Yep, absolutely. And then what? But in Acts, he's the head of the Church of Jerusalem. So this is this is this is the turning point, and this this is is historically actually supported by non-Christians. So Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that James, the brother of Jesus, was the head of the Jerusalem Church, and it corroborates the Acts narrative that Luke wrote. This is awesome, folks. This is great apologetics because now we have independent testimony from people who don't have a vested interest in supporting the Christian cause. Josephus had no interest in supporting the Christian movement, I can tell you right now. And yet, Josephus corroborates much of the, of the history of the New Testament, which is great. James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church at some point, which tells you and tells me he became a believer of Jesus, and in fact a staunch believer, and in fact such a, a strong believer that in 62 he is, he is murdered. Um, <clears throat> For his faith. So I put a lot of stock in tradition and I do feel that I do feel that James is the source of the content of the book of James or the epistle of James. Now the question you might have <clears throat> is, well did he write it? Now here's my tangent and I always do these. You get a five minute tangent and then we'll get into the word. Could James the brother of Christ write in Greek and write this? Now, this is going to be the thing that they'll get you with, the apologetics people. Well, I don't know. How could a Galilean car carpenter's family know excellent Greek and write it? Well, I'm going to make my case that I, you know, and then it gets into this big thing. Could Jesus read and write? Okay. Okay. So here's what we're getting at. This is exactly it. Could a carpenter's family from Galilee, who were admittedly, you know, poor, according to the New Testament, not wealthy, know how to read and write. What have I told you about reading and writing in antiquity? How common was it? Not common. Well, not common. didn't all young boys go to Hebrew school? Ah, so this is why, Dan, I'm so glad that you're here. You're going to teach this one day. I'm serious. You're getting up here. But let's back up for just a second. It'd be different. Time. Reading and writing. No, you do a good job. Reading and writing was not common. Laura is absolutely right. 95% of the world could not read and write in the first century. Couldn't read or write anything. Um, <clears throat> what does that mean about Jesus and his family? Well, I want you to first consider what Dan has just said. That for good Jews, okay, they would, who had time, and, and not necessarily money, but were religiously faithful, they would be brought up in a synagogue in which they would be taught how to at least they would be taught the stories of the, of the Bible, which in this case we call the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They would be taught the stories verbally. In many cases, they would be taught to read the scrolls of the Torah. Remember last week I talked about reading, right? Reading in antiquity with scrolls. They would have all these scrolls at the synagogue, and they would, they would give them to the, uh, the parishioners, to the, to, the, to the good, pious Jews there, and they would teach them how to read. Jesus is noted in the New Testament as reading the Isaiah scroll. Okay, so we have, we have textual evidence from the New Testament that Jesus could at least read. And he could probably read in not only Hebrew but Greek because some of the references that he has, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the Isaiah scroll reference is the Septuagint version, which means he could probably read in Greek as well as Hebrew, which would be what the scrolls were written in. Of course, Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, which is the common language of the era because the direct quotes that we have of Jesus are almost universally in Aramaic, which is a third kind of language. All right, where am I getting at? Could Jesus' family read and write? Because that gets at whether James, the brother of Jesus, could have written this. Well, the males. Males could do. He's supposed to go to school. Yeah, but again, 95% of males couldn't read or write either. Here's, here's, here's my argument. 
it gets at whose Jesus family was. Who, let's back up for just a minute, and I'm, I'm getting to a point here. Who was Jesus' mother? That would be Mary. So he had, and this is my ancestry.com now. We have Joseph, that's his father, and his mother, Mary. Who is Mary related to in the New Testament of significance? Zechariah. Zechariah, whose sister was who? Or wife was who? Elizabeth. The New Testament says Mary. Mary was um, a sungenes of Elizabeth, which means a, a kinswoman or a relative. Some, some translations say cousin. I don't know if that's supported. Sungenes means a relative. It doesn't mean cousin. Mary had a relative named Elizabeth. Elizabeth's husband was Zechariah. What was he? High priest. A priest. So this guy, I wouldn't call him a high priest. He was one of the priests that served the temple. But if you are a priest, what is your tribe? Levi. Levi. He was a Levite, and not just a Levite, he was a priest, which is a subcomponent of Levites. Elizabeth, having been married to Zechariah, was almost certainly also now, because she was married to him, what, tri what tribe? A Levite. Were priests literate? Yes. You better believe it. Priests <coughs> read and write in excellent Hebrew, probably in Greek as well at the period, and in Aramaic. Because Elizabeth was related to him, their children, which we know one child of this union, was who? John. Could John the Baptist read and write? Was he literate? You better believe it. Was Mary, related to Elizabeth, a Levite? No, from the King David. Yes. It depends, and, but there's a very specific answer here. Your tribal affiliation is related to who? Your mother or your father? Father. Father. Who was Mary's father? Who remembers their, their, well, their Luke? Or Matthew? Is his name Joseph? It's in Luke. What is, his, yeah. what is her father's name? I don't know. It's written that It's like an element. It's, it's Heli. I think it's Heli, isn't it? She was in the right line, though, to be. <clears throat> so was Joseph. Yes. He's in the line of David. What group was this? The line of David, which, what, tr what tribe is that? Yeah. I make the case that because there was a very close association here with a priestly family, and obviously Mary was very close to Elizabeth because they spent a lot of time together, I'm going to make the, the case, and also here I want you to talk about Jesus' uh, occupation. What, what job did Jesus hold before he became a minister? Carpenter. Carpenter. Now, in today's day and age, you might look at a carpenter and say, oh. Um, Easy where you tread here. I know. And I'm gonna, <laughs> no, I'm making the case. What, what would you say, you know, is, is, a, you know, is a carpenter a common workman of the first century? Now, you might think to yourself, oh yeah, common workmen probably, probably couldn't read or write, probably dirt poor. The truth is, a carpenter was an artisan of the first century, and an artisan was what? <clears throat> Just some guy you pick off the street? He was a professional. He was a professional. He had a trade. He was probably well-trained. And obviously, because of the, you know, where Mary was going with this whole thing with Jesus, you, you better believe that they probably were not super poor. The, the New Testament records they had to offer turtle doves for Jesus' dedication, which is the code of saying they were poor enough they couldn't afford a lamb. And so what I'm getting at is, while you might consider them to be workmen, blue collar, they were certainly professional enough to have association with the priesthood, have enough money to be carpenters and be trained in carpentry, I would propose that it makes a lot of sense that Jesus and his brothers were trained to read and write from children. That's where I'm going with all of this. Now, were they trained well enough to read and write to have written excellent Greek of the, of the, of the epistle of James? Probably not. Probably not. And so this is the apologetics I want to kind of leave you with as we get into the word today, which is 
just because James, the brother of Christ, did not sit down and maybe write word for word everything that's in here doesn't mean he's not the author. Again, it gets at this. I believe that James, the brother of Jesus, was the source of this material, period. And at some point, either his writings or his words were written down by a Hellenistic Jew who knew Greek and knew <laughs> Greek literature because this is written in a form called a diatribe, which today sounds like you know a rant, but really in the past meant something much more literary of, uh, of a way of writing. And the Greek itself is excellent. I think someone took what he had, either written or said, and put it into this form of James the Epistle. So that's where we're at today. Well, well like Paul... <clears throat> In, in Paul's epistles, it actually says at the end of some of them, yeah. this was actually written down by this person. Yeah. Even though it is like yeah. it was Paul's words, but yeah, he had exactly. a scribe. And Paul, for sure, being a Pharisee, could mm -hmm. have written in excellent Greek or Hebrew. But yeah. he even says that he had a scribe, so it's not. So like we have we have precedent. And yeah. mm -hmm. He's writing for Peter. Ah. Okay. That's another good one. That's another good one. Yeah, Jesus could have taught him, but we don't have we don't have any of that says that by the way, Jesus probably knew Greek and he probably could write and read and right. but. There's one last thing I'll, I'll point you to, which is in Acts. Actually Luke records a letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, in Acts. <coughs> and there are a lot of similarities, folks. Acts, let's see if I can remember exact fifteen maybe. Fifteen. Acts 15 records a letter <laughs> copied into Acts that Luke copied from James. That has a lot of striking similarities to this. So I think there's a lot of, uh, according to what everyone has said here and what, what, of course, I believe, that James, the brother of Jesus, is the source of the material. Okay. <clears throat> that was easy enough. It only took a half hour. I mean, <laughs> done. We just quit now, right? Uh, Who is he writing to? And in fact, you get the audience. So who wrote it? Now who is he writing it to? It says right there in verse 1. To the Jews. But who specifically? Twelve tribes in the dispersion. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. What the heck does that mean? Israelites. Mm. Israelites. Well, because the ten tribes that were in the north when they got scattered early on. And then there's the two well, Why were they scattered? What uh, scattered them? God. Okay. <laughs> the persecution in Jerusalem. Yes. So then you have to ask yourself, why are they scattered? Now remember, um, there are a lot of events that scattered Jews in antiquity. Um, it happened many times. Um, one of the biggest happened in 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? Destruction. Jerusalem destroyed. <laughs> You've heard that before. We heard it in 586. Um, it happened kind of off and on throughout the centuries leading up to the first century. But in 70 AD, the Romans come and they completely destroy Jerusalem and burn its temple to the ground. Now, if that isn't a scattering of Jews, I don't know what is. In fact, Many people in, in all of Israel lost their lives, and those who remained left um, and were scattered. So, the Christians left before that. Yeah. Which was the first attack. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're getting at is, well, if this was written probably in the mid-first century, this hasn't happened yet. So what we're thinking is, the scattering is probably Jewish Christians who were scattered because of the persecutions that were starting to break out against Christians right after Jesus. Remember, James the Apostle was killed just, just a few years after Jesus. In fact, there's a stoning of someone very famous right after Jesus ascended. Who was that? Stephen. Stephen. This is believed to be the first persecution of Christians, in this case by Jews, that happened. And it literally happened within days or weeks of Jesus um, uh, rising from the dead. Yeah. It was within probably a year, I would say. 33 to 34 is the traditional time of this. Stephen is stoned, and that's the first great persecution of Christians by Jews. Then we have another persecution, I believe this is by Herod Agrippa, in 44, so just 10 years later. So here we have this, we have this, we have the, the Nero persecution 
which is going to break out. And no, no one's really clear how widespread that was. So at least here you got one. In recorded history, you have at least three persecutions of Christians that happen within just a few decades. As the Christians are persecuted, what happens to them? Well, they scatter. Yeah, they scatter. They run. Well, Jesus wanted them to do that, though, because they had spread the word to the entire world. They're comfortable in Jerusalem. And this is, this is what someone today looks back on and says yeah. that must have been why this was happening. So do you have a timeline for Saul? When we talk about Galatians, I will be happy to share that. Okay. So <clears throat> the audience is the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Another thing I'll say about this, what, who is the audience here? As you read James, there are at least, I don't know, 40 allusions to the Old Testament. <clears throat> Multiple allusions to the Old Testament. Multiple to OT. Um, there are overlaps with wisdom literature of the period. So this is Jewish wisdom literature. literature. What else? I think what I'm getting at here is um, <clears throat> it seems as though this author, and again, when I say who wrote it, it's not just the person. I don't really care about the name. Okay, James, the brother of Jesus, James of Nazareth. <laughs> I don't really care that it was called James of Nazareth. The author, I care about who was that person. What kind of person was he? This appears to be a Jewish Christian writing this. Someone who has grown up in the Jewish faith, who writes excellent Greek, so he's a Hellenistic or liberal Jew from the sense that he has been trained in, the, in kind of the Greek way of speaking and writing. Who is writing to, and many times, I think there's at least 10, 15 references here to brothers, my brothers, guess what? Referring to your brothers was a very common way that Jews in the first century referred to each other. So this is almost certainly a Jew, Jewish Christian writing to other Jewish Christians. The content of James talks about a lot of controversy, a lot of strife, a lot of trials, which we'll talk about here as we get into chapter 1. But it kind of paints the picture that he's writing to people who are being persecuted. From a, from a perspective of someone that has been or has endured many things and has learned how to endure those things. Uh, he refers, I, I feel he's kind of referring to himself. Like, this is, this is what I've learned by persevering through yeah. this, using I like that. these things. Life lessons. Yep, passed on. Great. Okay. Let's talk about James. Let's actually read James 1. Let's go through this. There, James is one of the most densest theological <laughs> scriptures we have in the whole Bible. So we're going to take it one chapter at a time, and as we go through it, be thinking as we read what sticks out to you, and I'll write it down on the, on the sheet here, or on the board. James 1. Verses 1 to 27. Who can read that for me? I can read it. Thank you, sir. Since you, I don't think we have the fancy words. Uh, James, the servant of God and, the, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he uh, will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower in the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers, with withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he has stood the test that will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, um, and, him, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved uh, brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now this, my beloved beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not just not and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, uh, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in, into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but forgets uh, being a doer, uh, doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Excellent, thank you. Oof. <laughs> Where do we begin? Better it is. It is a full punches. This is really interesting. So it's interesting you should say that. I was gonna talk about this later. When you talk about an epistle of the New Testament, probably the first thing that comes to mind is a letter written by Paul, right? Paul tends to write in a certain way, and if you've read the New Testament, you've read Paul's letters, you kind of get this feeling, Paul is a very personal guy who knows people personally and writes to direct people about personal issues, right? He names them by name, often. Um, he, he points out specific incidents that happen. He talks about how he has either been a part of that church or a part of that group and how he's longing to get back to see them. He talks about how he, as, as a person, is emotionally moved by the events that were happening that led him to write a certain letter. When you look at James, if you were to just take off verse 1, does it really tell you, is it like the epistles that Paul has written. What would you say it's like? Well, there's no warm fuzzy to start off with. <coughs> Goes right into it. Kind of like the law. Yeah. It's not really very personal. It's just more yeah. of a talking to general yes. people in general. Yeah. And, and it, kind of, it, it kind of says, I think, and it's kind of interesting because today we, we have the letters of Paul that have been preserved for 2,000 years, praise God, right? It's, it's probable that the number one reason Paul wrote was for a specific reason to a specific church. But he knew secondarily that because of the way things worked in the first century, his writing would likely be kept and copied and passed on to others, kind of in a secondary way to spread the message he was trying to make to this first group. Here we have no indication that there is a first group. I would argue Whoever is writing this, if it's you know James or whoever you want to call him, wrote this for the intent, the specific intent to have it distributed immediately. Why? Because in the very beginning he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes. Immediately he says right off the bat, I'm writing this to everyone in all of the nations. All of the nations, which means the whole world, and immediately launches into a very general discussion. It's sort of reminiscent of Jesus in the fact yeah. that it's you know, lessons in a general yeah. audience, not just to a specific. And what were some of those lessons? What is some of the content here that strikes you? 
Well, I noticed that it was the, um, he was leader of the Church of Jerusalem. It's filled with people. Mm -hmm. And people are all through the other churches. Mm -hmm. And so you could write probably to the Jerusalem church and it applies to everybody else. Sure, but what is that writing? What is the content that you're reading like, here? Embrace challenges. Well, they're going through persecution right now. And why do you say that? Why is it so obvious that there's a persecution? Well, it says when you do. Yeah. <clears throat> there, look, folks, he's not just coming up with stuff. If you ever happen to run into, you know, if anyone ever hits your car in the parking lot, do the following. Well, why, why would you say that? Because someone hit your car. Well, they killed Jesus, so if it, he's the leader, mm -hmm. and it's going to happen again. It, it suggests, and this is a little deeper than yeah. for me, but um, it suggests that you don't just ask for him to be taken away. Mm. Just, just plow through it. Maybe not even plow, but Accept walk. it. Accept it. Yeah. Take, you know, realize Jesus is right here with you. Yeah. And, we like to ask him to be taken, just taken well, away. Shane Woods, um, when he asked the uh, preacher from India what he needed to pray for, and it's strong backs. <coughs> it's not that the persecution will go away, but they can endure the persecution. I think that's part of being a, um, being a creature of the word and yeah. walker in the faith is we have to be resolute in that we are going to face trials. We are going to be persecuted just because of who we follow. And it's... It, it is literally, yeah. literally it's, critical to your growth. Yeah. Trials are this critical to your growth. What do you mean by that? Uh, what's the word? There's a fancy word for that. Um, oh, come on. I don't do fancy words. That's what Nicole Hobson is for. She's not here, so we don't, <laughs> we don't have the uh, terminology. The, it's kind of like a just chapter one is like a mm -hmm. guidebook for how to live as a Christian yeah. every day because it's instructional. Yeah. It's very instructional. It's like everybody deals with anger, everybody has trouble listening, obeying, everybody gets tempted. I mean, these are all things that you're gonna run into every day and that's it. It's very practical. Oh yeah, there we go. That's what we're getting at here. Practical. Look. Um, <laughs> There is kind of two schools of, of literature in the Old Testament. There is the general kind of pious religious conversation that happens about, in general, you need to love God and love people and serve both and be faithful in general. And that's like 80, 90% of the Old Testament. 10 to 20% of the Old Testament is a very specific, very specific cases, life, life situations. Much of that content is called, um, the literature is called Proverbs, or wisdom literature. It is very practical, tactical situations in which if, <laughs> if, your, if your ox falls into a, a hole on the Sabbath, do not pull it out because that's work. Okay, that's probably a bad example. Uh, if you read the book of Proverbs, it's almost all these very pithy, very short sayings that have to do with very specific situations in life. This is exactly what you're reading here. <clears throat> you're see and in fact, the author of James does a really good job of mixing those two kind of genres. General, what I would call pious or religious uh, content, mixed with very practical, specific content. Here you've got it. Whole, it's basically a laundry list. What to do in specific situations. I want to add here is, uh, verse five talks about lack wisdom, let him ask God. It's getting back to, you're not doing this on your own. You're, you're looking for God in all these things to help you through them or to make you stronger in your faith. Well, really, that's the only way we're going to get through this. Exactly. With God. Yep. And, and you can expect that. You can expect God to give you that wisdom. When you look at it, Stephen, he completely knew and understood that he's going to lose his life, and he just accepted it, and he allowed it to happen. He could have fought back, mm -hmm. but he didn't. This, this is really important because the world doesn't get the wisdom that we're talking about here. Now, if you were to give this Bible to a non-Christian, maybe a non-believer who has never even heard of the Bible, right, before or read any of it, and you start talking about wisdom, God makes it very clear, it's important for you to have wisdom. What is a person who is a worldly person, non-believer, going to think you mean by that? 
understanding. Which is you what? Need what smarts, like you're a smart person. We want you to have a high IQ. Clear up all the unknowns. Yeah. You can figure it all out. You're smart, right? Yeah. Know the universe. Right? You could you know you know calculus and you probably know all the moons of Jupiter and um, <clears throat> maybe if you were given an IQ test you would ace it. In some ways that is not what wisdom of the Bible is talking about. It's talking about Godly wisdom. What is godly wisdom? How to deal with crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I chose the better word, all right? <laughs> I think it's understanding who is in control. Ah, okay. And how we fit in the, the grand scheme of things. Your place in the universe. Okay, what else? What else is godly wisdom? And if you read Ezekiel, or Jeremiah, or certainly Proverbs, or Psalms, you get a sense for what kind of person is a godly, a wise, godly person. We can plant a seed or water a seed. Mm -hmm. God gives the increase. God does mm -hmm. it. We don't. Okay, so let's, here we go. Here we go. You're humble. What else? You're led by God himself. <clears throat> led by God. What else? Are you following his commandments or are you ignoring them? This is a big one. Obedient. And, and I hate to look for a word, but I really am here. Obedient. I can't spell either. This is the, okay, I believe the author of James is getting at this right here. If you are wise, you're smart because you're following what God told you to do. He starts off by calling himself a bondservant. What does that mean? In Greek, I've told you what bondservant means. Slave. It's a fancy word for slave, Bond, folks. For yeah. <clears throat> I think it's also, you got to get to the point, you have to admit that you need a Savior, that you need Jesus, yes. that you were wrong. Yep. And James, of all people, he didn't believe in his, his brother <laughs> until after he saw him after the resurrection. What did we just read in here about the proud, um, the wealthy? Let's see here. Let's see. But it'll fade away. Yeah. It's kind of how I yeah. The, the, look. There it is. For the sun rises scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, a rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Rich people tend to also be associated with one character trait, proud. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They think they know everything. And right off the bat, you guys are absolutely right. The author is saying, no, if you're really wise, you'll realize you're not in control of the universe. You're not. You're not you don't control. know everything. You don't, you're not in control of anything. Your faults. How weird, and, and, I, and I like to say this a lot, that humans don't deal with paradox as well at all. Paradox is two seemingly contradictory states that appear to happen simultaneously. The author of James is saying, if you're really smart, you're dumb. And you admit it. Wise people admit they're not wise. That's a paradox, but it's true. You don't have it all together. You don't know how the universe works, and you're certainly not in control. What else does it say? What, and, and as we read this, and I kind of asked, how did you know the problems that are happening here? Well, there's a reason why this author is saying it. Let's say he says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Well, what is that telling you is happening in the church? They're doing just the opposite. That's it. That's it. Well, they're probably frustrated. I mean, okay. they've been uprooted from and their right surroundings. So, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, can you imagine coming back and... <clears throat> That your home has been overtaken. I heard, and, I heard this, state, this statement yesterday. Do not become, do not make yourself the hero and the victim of your own story. Mm. Which, back then, I mean, you can, I play the victim, but man, look how, you know, look how good I, they've persecuted I me. 
but watch this. I love this. This well, is so yeah. true. Like Paul and Corinthians, he's talking about in the church that everybody's trying to jump up and prophesy, and yeah. then somebody's trying to speak in tongues. And this point, because like people are like, look at me, look at me. Like I know I have the revelation from God, so I'm sure that in their churches, like they're like, oh, listen to me because I'm, you know, I've just heard from God, and this other person's like, oh well, you know, I. You don't know anything. I know everything, you know. And even Jesus' disciples had that problem where they're like, well, I want to sit on the right side. And I want to sit on, they're focusing on the wrong things. Yes. You know, I think it's just our inherent <clears throat> humanness. We want to like. What's my position? We want to be in the best position, right? There are literally within 27 verses a ton of issues that suddenly appears the church is struggling with in the middle of the first century. Rich versus poor, spiritual versus non-spiritual, proud versus humble, um, uh, fighting versus unity. Folks, a lot is made today of, well, the church in America in the 21st century is falling apart and things are getting really bad. Hey, guess what? How many years did it take for the church to start falling apart after Jesus left? About zero seconds. About none. Already, we're dealing with all of this here, and it's not getting any better from the sense of it's not going to just magically get fixed. How does this apply to your life? How can you apply this, knowing that today? We should, like, take this chapter to heart, right? And he says, ask for wisdom if you don't have it. So we need to ask for wisdom, right? We need to be spiritually, you know, we need to... It says, and then it that also goes on to say, not only be a hearer, but also a doer. This is huge. And in fact, I'm going to kind of leave us today with that cliffhanger, because this is one of the fundamental pieces of James that a lot of people jump on and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul is telling me that I'm saved through faith, through belief in Jesus and who he is. And now... The, 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 the appetizer you just got for chapter 1 is going to be fully fleshed out next week in chapter 2 about what is the relationship between faith and works. And it has been probably one of the biggest controversies in Christian theology for 2,000 years. We're going to get into it next week, but I want you to think today about what you're hearing here because it is in some ways a paradox. And I know you don't want to hear that, about the relationship between faith and works, but right off the bat, we're seeing all of this is not theoretical. Right off the bat, we're seeing there is real world, actual issues that are happening within the church and within people's hearts that need to be addressed. And we've listed a few of them here, rich versus poor, you know, proud versus humble, etc. We're going to get into it next week. This, it's, all, it's all great knowledge to have, but unless you do something with it, what was the point? And I would say the purpose of, of James is to act on your faith. 100% act on your faith. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.